0: A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who uh, received a letter inviting him to go and visit uh, an old couple one weekend. Uh, he didn't know them, he'd heard of them, but he'd never met them. Um, but it seemed that they wanted to hear a bit about, about the gospel, about Jesus. Uh, and so he, he went to stay. Uh, he, he turned up at their house, and he was met at the door by a, a younger man who helps to look after them. And the, the guy showed him up to his room, uh, helped him unpack, and then said, Look, what. When you're ready, just go downstairs. Okay, They're in the front room. Now, put yourself in his shoes. What would you do next? How would you go downstairs into the front room? What would be going through your mind as you go down the stairs and approach them? And you might be thinking, what an incredibly boring question. Okay. That's a really dull way to start a sermon. You know, a man walks upstairs and then comes downstairs into a front room. Let me give you a bit more details. Uh, the couple uh, are called Elizabeth. Well, she's Elizabeth and he's Philip. Uh, they have three sons and a daughter. Charles, Andrew, Edward, and Anne. Uh, this particular house is in Scotland, in Balmoral. She is the Queen of England and he is Prince Philip. Uh, this guy had been invited to stay with them for the weekend uh, and actually to preach uh, at the church that they attend on Sunday. And suddenly, that those words of the young man, the, the, the equerry, who was looking after him, make yourself at home, and then go downstairs, they're in the front room. Well, suddenly that invitation completely changes, doesn't it? This is not some normal family situation. This is a royal family of the United Kingdom. So going through your head straight away, what should I wear? How should I dress? What's the right thing to say? Uh, When I approach, I think I've I've seen the king's speech. I think you're meant to call her uh, your majesty and then then ma'am. But what what would you call Prince Philip? How how do you address a a prince? Am I meant to bow every time I speak? Am I allowed to speak before she speaks to me? What are you to do? Unsurprisingly, he was given a huge list uh, in advance uh, of protocol and etiquette. Knowing who you're approaching hugely changes how you approach when my, I hear my children crying at night or something, I, I just go straight through the door. Okay, open the door of the bedroom, straight in to see what the problem is. If I'm visiting my parents' house, we drive down to my parents' house, you know, I'll knock, I won't just barge in. But I won't make a huge effort, I won't stop and shower on the way and you know, make sure I've done my hair. It's yeah, Mum and Dad, it's pretty casual, but still I won't barge in. If I was going to see the Queen, well, that would be a new wardrobe, wouldn't it? Tidied up, shaved, best behaviour. Uh, the, the passage we're looking at today, Leviticus 10, it is all about two people who, who hugely misunderstood who they were approaching and therefore approached him so inappropriately that it ended in their death. Uh, we are really going to focus on, on verses 1 to 3. So, just, just big picture, Let, let's see what happens. You've got these two guys, Nadab and Abihu, and they are the sons of Aaron. D- children, do you, does anyone remember who Aaron is? Anyone remember who Aaron is? Perhaps he's Aaron. Brilliant, he's the high priest. And can anyone remember his brother? Aaron is the brother of someone really important too. Anyone know? Aaron's brother is... God. Moses, that's right. OK, so these guys are Moses' nephews. They're the sons of the high priest. They're priests themselves, Nadab and Abihu. And what do they decide to do? Well, they take their censer. That's a kind of pot which you put incense in, fire and incense. So it's a kind of smelly, swinging pot. And they decide to go in to the tabernacle... Uh, to to essentially worship God. What happens? Well, uh, verse 1, their fire is unauthorised. We'll come back to that. And so, verse 2, what happens is actually, God, fire comes out from God and they die. They're consumed. Two people inappropriately approach God and end up dead, even though they're priests, even though they're coming to the true God, of Israel I think this passage in terms of what it says to us today pushes us in two directions I want to deal with one very quickly and one which I think is the main name at more length very quickly I think it says something to us as a society we're taught aren't we endlessly and you'll be taught this at school it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how you come to God okay? it doesn't matter what you call God someone might want to call him Allah someone else might want to call him Jesus someone else might want to call him Vishnu or Shriva Years ago, people called him Zeus or Jupiter. That doesn't matter at all. What matters is that you're sincere. So in that sense, we're told all religions are the same. It doesn't matter how you come to God, as long as you're sincere in your heart. Leviticus 10, about the whole book of Leviticus, tells us that that is just not true. It is not true to say that all religions are the same, all ways to God are the same, and that Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Sikhism and Baha'iism and on and on we might go, are all essentially different roads leading up the same mountain. In fact, not, almost none of those religions think that too, and that's one of the ironies. Okay, we were taught in schools and the kind of... Uh, the, the, the air we breathe, the shows we watch on TV, the kind of public commentators, all want to tell us that actually ultimately everybody is the same. Whereas the actual adherents of the religions, know very well they're not. Uh, in Leviticus so far, we, we, we've seen that the main thing we've seen is that it's impossible to come to God without a sacrifice. Uh, at the beginning of the book, as, as Exodus moved into Leviticus, we saw that Moses couldn't, even Moses couldn't get into the tabernacle, that God's house. Because God's burning fire was too pure. He was driven out. And so Leviticus has been about how can these people who've not been allowed into God's house get in. And the main emphasis has been sacrifice. Big picture. I know there has been details, but big picture it has been sacrifice. You cannot approach God other than through sacrifice. And one of the main ways that the New Testament picks up that teaching, think of a book like Hebrews, is to say that there is no way to come to God in his real dwelling place, that's heaven, without coming through a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, these goats and bulls and lambs and doves dying all over the place in the tabernacle, being sacrificed, the blood being applied, they're all pictures of something far greater. Uh, they're a picture of Christ who came and died for us. So in that sense, Leviticus is a big visual aid saying the only way back into God's presence is through Jesus. The only way to heaven is through the sacrifice of Christ. That's why he himself, when he teaches, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Christ makes exclusive claims about being the entranceway to heaven. In fact, elsewhere he says, I'm the gate. He compares himself to the door, if you like, to heaven. I'm the only way in. Uh, Can I ask you, uh, perhaps you're not a Christian, Uh, have you been sold this line uh, that ultimately it doesn't matter too much what you believe or what you call God or how you worship or whether, as long as you're sincere in your heart? I'm afraid that's just not true. Uh, So often this idea, this question of, you know, how should we approach God? What what about all these different religions? It's a a bit, it's addressed as if it's like one of those... Uh, you've seen, seen those conventions where um, uh, comic book fans dress up, you know, and they, they all turn up dressed as Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or whatever. And I remember this used to happen as a kid in school as well. You get into these debates. Who'd win in a fight between Batman and Spider-Man? Okay. Who would win if Superman wrestled the Incredible Hulk? Well, kind of who cares? It doesn't really matter, does it? You can have your opinion, but it's all fantasy land. Because those figures aren't real. It just doesn't matter. So you can say my opinion is Superman's the best superhero, but it doesn't matter because there's no grounding in reality. Uh, That is how we're taught RE nowadays in schools. Uh, It'll never be said that explicitly, but the underlying assumption is well, none of these beings really exist anyway. So, So it doesn't really matter. In fact, you can only say it doesn't really matter if none of them really exist. If essentially you're teaching people It's just a whole bunch of imaginary friends that they're squabbling over. But if God is real, if God is out there, then it does matter. Uh, To say, well, in my opinion, God is like this and I want to approach him this way would be, as Daft as saying, well, in my opinion, Edinburgh is the capital of France. You can say that, you can have that opinion, but it just doesn't correlate with the facts, with the reality. What is real... And he will only be approached one way, that is through Jesus Christ. Uh, the story of Nadab and Abihu puts that in, in striking, almost scary contrast. They are consumed, they are, they are burnt by the fire. They die because they approach God in the wrong way. So the first thing this passage teaches us is to only come to God through Christ. That's why even on Sunday, we, we, everything we say, our prayers are in Christ's name. We worship through Christ alone. It's only in the gospel that we can come to God. But but I actually think this this passage has got more to say to us, and particularly if we're Christians, I think this is is probably a shocking passage for us. Uh, This incident with Nadab and Abihu is not simply about how you get saved, but but about how you rightly worship God. Uh, The book of Hebrews, when it commentates on Leviticus, tries to explain Leviticus, doesn't just say hey, that was all one giant visual aid pointing forward to Jesus. It also calls what was going on in the Old Testament worship. Okay, this is how the, 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 the Israelites worship God. And clearly, that's what Nadab and Abihu think they're doing. When Nadab and Abihu get up that morning, and this is the same day as Old Testament worship has begun, by the way. Okay, if you were here last week, this is the same day. When Nadab and Abihu get up, they're not thinking, hey, let's go and get saved. Okay, let, let's become believers by offering this strange fire whatever it is now clearly they think they are worshipping the Lord they already they already know they're part of God's people they, they want to come and worship and so what Leviticus 10 almost shouts at us is God cares how he's worshipped not just that he's worshipped of course we say to the world around you must come and worship God you must serve him he must be your God and savior that's right you must worship the right God that's what we said already but Leviticus 10 goes further and says God cares how we worship him. Uh, that's been a theme all the way through the, the book of Exodus, the rescue of God's people uh, that leads up to Leviticus. Just, just, just come back with me. I don't want to go too much a paper trail, but come back with me to Exodus 20. Uh, it's the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, page 61, just a few pages earlier Exodus 20 Israel's been rescued from slavery in Egypt, they've been making bricks for Pharaoh, they've been rescued and they gather at Mount Sinai, so that God can speak to them and God gives them, children can anyone remember what the main thing God gives the Israelites at Mount Sinai is okay, there's one sort of most famous thing, Yeah. what's the most famous thing? bingo, the ten commandments well done Okay, the Ten Commandments. And look at, well, look at the second of the commandments. Verse four. Well, let's be let's the first. Verse three is the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Okay, you must have me as your God. But verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in earth beneath or the water and on it goes. No images of anything. Even anything in heaven above. What's in heaven? Oh, yes, angels. It's also God. The second commandment is not simply saying the same as the first commandment. I think sometimes we, we get them tumbled up. You know, the first commandment says no idolatry, no other gods. And the second one says don't make any other gods. And they kind of sound as if they're the same. They're not the same. They're linked. But the first one is about who we should worship, the true God. The second one is how. No images, specifically here. No images of God. But the big point is that God cares how he is worshipped. And if that's not clear enough, the Israelites get this wrong straight away. Just flick over a few pages to Exodus 32, onto page 72. And whilst Moses is still up the mountain, Exodus 32, Moses is up there getting more instruction from God. And what happens? Well, verse 1, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods that shall go before us. Moses disappeared. He's up the mountain. He's in the space. Maybe he's gone. We, We need something to worship. So verse 2, Aaron says, take off your rings of gold. They're in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold. And when Aaron receives the gold, verse 4... He turns it into a golden calf. You see, he makes a little gold cow. Okay. And can you see, can you see in verse 5, who does Aaron say this gold cow is? When Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? Is it Who is it to? Exactly, and in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it's a feast to the Lord. Aaron is not making a different God. Aaron is not saying, okay, Yahweh, the Lord, that Lord in capital letters is Yahweh or Jehovah in older English. Aaron is not saying, never mind Jehovah, Yahweh, let's worship a new God, a new cow God. What Aaron has done is said, okay, let's worship the Lord via this golden calf. He's not taking them to a new God. He's taking them to the same God, but in a different manner. And if you know the story, it ends in utter disaster. God wants to blot out the entire people. He cares not just that we worship him, but how his people worship him. And that's the... And this has happened just, we don't know exactly, but it's just days, maybe weeks, before the instance in, in Leviticus. They're still at Sinai. Okay, it might be several pages on in the Bible, but they're still at Sinai. And so in Leviticus 10, which is where we're going to be for the rest of our time today, Nadab and Abihu, well, do they do the same thing? They come to bring fire to the Lord. Okay, they are worshiping Yahweh still. But it is, as Leviticus 10 verse 1 calls it, unauthorized fire or strange, the footnote says. And the big point is it's fire that he had not commanded. What is it they do wrong? We don't know exactly, and people have speculated down the years, right back from some Jewish commentators We try to understand this text. Some people have said, well, it's that they got drunk and then took this, these sort of swinging incense pots in. Possible. It doesn't say that exactly. People say that because a bit later God says, right, there's no alcohol anymore if you're going to be a priest on duty. It's possible. Other people are suggesting perhaps they got the fire from the wrong altar. Last week we saw that God set fire to an altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, and that's where the stuff was meant to, the sacrifices were meant to happen. Perhaps Nadab and Abihu started their own fire and brought in fire from somewhere else. Possible. We're not told. But what we are told is that it was unauthorised. It's not as God had commanded. The point is they are not worshipping God according to his word. And that is, that's been the big flow of chapters 8 through 10. Uh, Chapters 8 through 10 have been the beginning of this worship of the Old Covenant, the people of God. Uh, And all the way through, it's been hammered home that it's to be done as the Lord commanded. Uh, So uh, chapter 8. Almost every step of the process, if if you look at the paragraphs there, um, ends with the words, As the Lord commanded Moses. If you you read through chapter 8, Yeah, they 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 make the clothes as the Lord commanded Moses. They anoint the tabernacle with oil as the Lord commanded Moses. They offer bulls as sacrifices as the Lord commanded Moses. On and on and on, the repeated theme: as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Right the way through chapter nine. Okay, they do an offering, verse uh, twenty-one of chapter nine, as the Lord, uh, sorry, as uh, Moses commanded, and then suddenly, chapter ten. They offer fire which he had not commanded. We don't know the specifics. What we do know is this is worship in a style, a manner that God has not commanded. And that is that is a, I think a really important principle in the Bible. And one that I just wonder if in the modern church, our kind of circles, we've lost sight of. Not just that we ought to worship the right God, but we ought to worship the right God Rightly, that our that our worship should be shaped by God's word. That's how it was meant to work in the Old Testament. If we've been following this through, there's been steps. God tells Moses what to do. Moses tells Aaron and the priests, and then Aaron and the priests tell the congregation, the worshippers. And the people at the end, the priests, aren't at liberty to sort of innovate. Nadab and Abihu, you know, have just been on a creative worship seminar or something like that. And they die for it. They're just not allowed to innovate. They're not allowed to be inventive, imaginative. They have to do what the Lord commands. And this has real significance for us in a number of ways. Uh, First of all, it it has a difference in terms of how, how we lead worship on a Sunday. Okay, let, let me try. Especially if you're a regular here at Christchurch, you've begun coming along recently, just let me try and explain a little bit about what's, what's going on. The, the role of leading worship is a significant one. Le- leading the service, if you like. In the Old Testament, the priests did three main things. They sacrificed. Okay, we've seen that all the way through the book. They were the ones who killed the animals. They were the butchers, if you like. But look at verse 11. What else did they do? They taught the people of Israel. The role of the priest was not just to sacrifice but to teach and also to oversee the worship. They were the ones who, as part of that teaching, led the, the, the worship of the tabernacle. Three roles. Sacrificing, teaching, leading the worship. Well, what about now? Well, sacrifice is gone, hasn't it? Okay, we don't bring bulls and goats in on a Sunday. Okay, we don't, you don't slaughter things and apply the blood to it or anything like that. Because Christ is our one sacrifice. But those other two roles of the spiritual leadership of Israel teaching and overseeing the worship, they've not disappeared. Okay, they are passed down the generations, and that is what the elders of the New Testament inherit. That is the, the job, or large part of the jobs, of an elder okay, or a minister. You call them what you like. To teach and to oversee the worship. And that's why I'm, I'm cautious, careful... About how we put the, the service together and who leads. It's not one of the roles that you just sort of everyone has a go at, any more than preaching is a role that everyone has a go at. Uh, I myself have been in churches and I've said this myself, which we have a really high view of preaching. Okay, so we'll only let them, you know, people who've been trained to preach and whatever it might be, the only elders preach and that's ministry of the word. But hey, leading the service, that's, you know, just like comparing a show, hosting the Royal Variety Performance. Well, no. It's all ministry of the word, not just the preaching. From the moment the call to worship goes out to the, the benediction at the end, it's all ministry of the word. And that's why it's to be led with care. Uh, but Leviticus 10 speaks to more than that, I think. It speaks not just leading worship, but also the, the content of our worship. We, we don't worship like Israelites anymore, obviously. Blood, guts and gore everywhere. But when we come to the New Testament and we look and see what, what is it, that the New Testament commands us to do when when we come together? What does God tell us to do? What does the Holy Spirit say to us in the New Testament? I think there are five, possibly six things. Uh, We're told to read the Bible. Timothy, the the sort of successor of the Apostle Paul, not because he's an apostle, he's just a minister, but the one who who takes things on to the next generation, is told by Paul and to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture that's one of the things if you're a minister you're told to do devote yourself to the public reading scripture again that's why we don't really have a reader's rota it's cute when you get all you know the little children up to read and everything and they... but, but actually it's, it's, it's part of the job of the minister devote yourself to the reading of scripture the one who preaches should read really because the two go together we're to read the Bible we're to preach the Bible very obviously Paul goes on to say preach the word in season and out Uh, We're to sing the Bible. A couple of New Testament letters tell us uh, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. To one another is a corporate setting as well. Good to do on your own at home, but vital we do when we come together to church. That again is why we're trying to learn some psalms. I've not really grown up learning psalms at all, but we're trying to learn how to sing them a little bit. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, Bible, we pray the Bible. When the church comes together in... Acts 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, they pray together and we see the Bible, like we see the gospel message in the Lord's Supper and Baptism, there's pictures of the gospel. Uh, there's another one I think in there as well, which I can't make, sort of end with the Bible, uh, which is giving. Okay, in Acts 2 when the church gather together, they also give, okay, they, and that's why we take a collection on Sunday, specifically for the, uh, the poor and those in need, but, but that's about it. I don't think there's much else, I mean, please show me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I don't think there's much else that God tells us to do in worship when we gather together formally, if you like, on a Sunday. It's what in the Presbyterian tradition or the Reformed tradition has been called the regulative principle. And, and that is this, that when you come to worship, you can only do what God commands. And that might sound as if, well, surely, that's, of course, that's obvious, that's what you do. But, but it's not been obvious to everybody. For lots of people, they say, well, you can do anything as long as it's not forbidden, But I'm not sure that's right. God nowhere explicitly said, Nadab and Abihu, you must not come and swing incense around like this. No, what he said is, this is what you must do. And because they didn't do what he told them to do, well, they ended up dead. Uh, that's why on a Sunday uh, we don't have drama, uh, we don't paint. You know, in, in, um, I've been in services where you, you know, if you want to come and express yourself to the Lord in paint, then we put an easel at the front and come and... Uh, we don't dance. It's not because any of those things are a problem. Okay? They're all really good things you can do to the glory of God, but just not in the context of the service. Okay? So don't mishear me. It's good to... Well, I'm terrible at it, but it's, if you're into art and painting, of course you can do that to the glory of God. Dancing. I'm even worse at dancing than I am painting. So it's not that these things are bad, it's just they're not for the worship service. We worship according to God's word. That's what shapes what we do on a Sunday morning. Why? As we close, why does this matter? Three reasons why it matters. Uh, First of all, the primary reason is that it honours God. It honours God when we worship him as he has told us to worship him. Uh, Leviticus 10 again. Uh, What's God's main concern, verse 3? Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. It honours God when we worship him as he's told us to worship him. And it dishonours him when we disobey him. Unless we think, well, that's just... Old Testament thing, isn't it? You know, the Old Testament God's a bit, what, angrier, seems a bit touchier. You know, we live in the new, covenant, new Testament days. Remember the letter of 1 Corinthians? Paul writes to the, the Corinthians, there's all sorts of things going on in the church. Yeah, someone's sleeping with his mother-in-law, another one's taking their friend to court, their brother Christian to court. All sorts of problems. But only one of them, as far as I can tell, in the whole of 1 Corinthians leads to someone people dying, getting ill and dying. Do you remember that? 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthians are, are, they're basically messing around with the Lord's Supper. Okay, when they come for communion, they're just not doing it according to God's word. Okay, one person's stuffing their face and getting on with it, they're ignoring the poor people, they're, they're treating the whole thing with contempt. And Paul says, because of this, because you're not caring for one another, because your are worship in regards to the Lord's Supper, is just completely disrespectful. He says, that's why some of you are ill and some have even died. Extraordinary died? B- because of a wrong attitude towards the Lord's Supper? Would, would that even enter our thinking? If someone said that, you know, if I hadn't told you that's in Corinthians, would you not just think, what are you on? But it's the same God. It is the same God. The same God who is a consuming fire, as our reading in Hebrews ended. Uh, If if you were here last week, you might have noticed some other parallels between the the successful worship service of chapter 9 and this disaster in chapter 10. The successful worship service of chapter 9 ends with fire coming out and consuming the sacrifices. Uh, You see it in verse 24, the last verse of chapter 9. Well, that same word is used in in chapter 10, verse 2, of the fire coming out and consuming Nadab and Abihu worship service chapter 9 they honour God and he comes and consumes the sacrifices his glory appears chapter 10 they dishonour him he comes and consumes the worship as they die so we worship according to God's word because it honours him secondly because that's how we receive his blessing again see the parallel chapter 9 ends okay, the successful worship Obedient worship service ends, chapter 9, verse 22, with the people being blessed. Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. It ends with Aaron saying, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Chapter 10, how does the service end? Verse 3, Aaron held his peace. Aaron is silent. There is no blessing. The point of if feel like restricting worship to reading the Bible, preaching the, the Bible, singing the Bible, singing the Bible, is so that God will bless us. We go to the places where He's promised to bless us. So you would imagine you got home today and Mum said there's no bread left, okay, and I want you to go to the shop. Okay, I've got no food whatsoever, nothing for lunch. I want you to go to the shop. And she gives you some money, and you go down to the shop, and you see three shops. Okay, you see a shoe shop, you see a toy shop, and you see Tesco's. And she sent you to go and get lunch. Which shop are you going to go into? Shoe shop, toy shop or Tesco's. Which shop are you going to go into? Tesco's. Tesco's. Why? Because out of toy shop that sells, oh. shop that sells. Exactly. and a shoe shop exactly. exactly. Tesco's that sells. Exactly. You go to the one that promises food. It's possible that there might be someone in the shoe shop he might have just set up a little stall and said, well, you, you know, today we're going to sell bread. It's possible. You could get some bread into a toy shop, of, couldn't you? But it's not, they haven't promised to sell food to you. Now, only Tesco, the, the supermarket, have promised to sell food. Is it possible that God could bless us in other ways? Okay, if we started dancing and painting and acting and all the rest of it, is it possible God could bless those things? It's possible, he can do anything he likes. But has he promised to? No. He, that's not where he's promised to meet us. And that's why we don't do them. We go to the places where God has promised... To bless us. Now, the Puritans used to call the Sunday, Sunday service the marketplace of the soul. Imagine in the old days you, when you used to go to market. The market would come in on the Monday or whatever. And you'd go and buy all your food for the week and stock up. And then you'd go home and you'd eat it all. And then next Monday when the market comes back, you, you're going to stock up again. That's what church is meant to be like. We come, we stock up, we, we, we receive the blessing of God, the filling of God. That feeds us through the week until we come back the following week. I say thirdly and finally, the reason we don't innovate, the reason we worship according to God's word, is is so that I don't put on you as the minister any burdens that the Lord hasn't. Okay, it's to give you freedom. This is one of the biggest issues in the Reformation. Calvin, when he wrote to the emperor in the the days of the Reformation, said there are two main problems I want to sort out. The second biggest problem is we've got confused about the gospel. That's only the second biggest problem for Calvin. The first biggest problem is we've lost how to worship rightly. That was his biggest issue. And the problem was the ministers, the priests, were forcing people to do all sorts of things that the Bible didn't. So you had to bow to this statue, kiss this image, light this candle, turn in a certain way. And the people who wanted to come and worship God were being forced to do it in all sorts of ways that were not binding by Scripture. as a minister, as elders, as we appoint elders to lead the church, we are not allowed to, to make you guys do things that God doesn't. Okay, that's why we don't get you to sort of pretend to be submarines or whatever and kids' songs or all the rest of it. Because it's not because it's not, kids' songs are bad and they're fun to do at home and the rest of it. It's because we can't bind you in ways that the Bible doesn't. And the purpose of it all is that God would come and bless. I really hope... This, this is the... If you like, in some ways, this is the negative side of last week. Last week was the positive side. All the stuff God wants. This is the negative side. He puts nine and ten together. One is encouragement, and then ten is a warning. So the danger. This sounds really negative, but the whole point is that we end up blessed as we meet week by week. Uh, the question. Uh, it's even on our posters there. The, the first question of the, the catechism: What is the chief end of man? What's the chief goal of man? What's the purpose of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Does that, there's something strange about it. Is that what struck you? What, what, what's wrong with the question? What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? And the catechism gives two answers, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Shouldn't they have asked what are the chief goals, plural? What are the chief ends, plural? Are you Are going to give two answers? Well, no. The whole point is the two go together. To glorify God and enjoy him. How do you enjoy God? By glorifying him. Worship and praise is what gives us the greatest pleasure. Because God allows us to see him, to know him, to expand our hearts and souls and find satisfaction as we worship. We are built to worship. And that is where we find our truest joy. That's why the worship service that's success in chapter 9 ends with the people falling down and crying out with joy. Whereas the disobedient one of chapter 10 ends with silence and death. God has made a way so that we can worship. The whole point of Exodus was Leviticus. We'll rescue you so you can worship. The whole point of the Gospels, the cross, the resurrection, is the book of Revelation. We can bow down and worship. That is what we'll spend eternity doing. And this is just a little foretaste each Sunday morning of the glories to come.